This morning, I feel compelled to be a prophet who unsettles the hearts of lost people. And my primary focus today is on those of you who may not know Jesus Christ. You've yet to follow, commit your life to following Jesus. The passage I want to look at today has a totally different purpose and strikes a totally different tone than the previous passages that we've considered. It's not comforting. It's not encouraging. It's not uplifting. It's a warning. And I believe it would not only be imbalanced, but negligent of me as a pastor to not preach a message of warning during this worldwide health and economic catastrophe. Now what is unique about this particular catastrophe is that it's not localized. We're only one city, one state, one country, or one region of the world is affected by some disaster. In the age of mass media, we're used to receiving a barrage of information and pictures and videos that keeps us up to speed with what's happening all around the world. And typically, we watch from a distance as people's lives are impacted by all sorts of deadly natural disasters like volcanic eruptions in the Philippines or earthquakes in Haiti or tsunamis in Indonesia or wildfires in Australia or locust swarms and famines in Africa or avalanches and mudslides in Europe or hurricanes along the East Coast or the Gulf Coast or tornadoes in the Midwest or genocides and epidemics in third world countries. But the coronavirus outbreak is a global event And everyone on the planet is being affected by it all at the same time. Few incidences in our lifetime have made it more evident that we live in a fallen, broken world. What's more, it's it's exposed mankind's mortality and forced people across the globe to grapple with how fragile and how short our lives really are. But now that the the peak of the virus has passed, at least that's what they're saying in most places, and there's talk of the lockdown being lifted and the restrictions being loosened and the economy being reopened, people are feeling a sense of relief and looking forward to their lives getting back to normal. And sadly, once the, the threat subsides, most people will do just that. They'll move on and they'll settle back into their everyday routines and forget all about their brush with disease and death. You don't want to be that person. Just because you survive the coronavirus doesn't mean you are immune to death because guess what? You're still going to die someday. The Bible says all of us have been infected by something far worse than the coronavirus. It's called sin. And we contracted sin from Adam and Eve who disobeyed God in the garden by eating the forbidden fruit and both their sin and the death that resulted from it spread to all mankind. And the death rate for sin is 100%. 10 out of 10 people die and sin will kill us if we don't repent of it and receive the antidote that God provided which was his son Jesus who died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin by enduring God's wrath for sin Jesus sacrificed his own life so that we might live his blood is the only vaccine that can save us from sin and death When you die, you'll have to stand before God, the God who created you, the God that has been sustaining you up to this point in your life, and you will have to give an account of how you lived. And unless you've repented of your 
life of sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will perish in hell. Now I know that might sound harsh and insensitive, especially at a time like this when so many have lost loved ones and have lost their jobs and are in need of care and compassion, but that's exactly what Jesus said to the people living in his day who experienced similar deadly tragedies. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to take it and turn with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 1. And let me read this text. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A a man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard and he came looking for fruit on it and it did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year or two, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. Father, this is a sobering text, and this is a sobering message. And so I pray that you would put your thoughts in my mind, put your words in my mouth, and that you would use these next few minutes to radically change people's lives forever. For your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, John Piper has said this, quote, every deadly calamity is a merciful call from God for the living to repent. Let me read that again. Every deadly calamity is a merciful call from God for the living to repent. You see, the Bible clearly teaches that there's really no such thing as a purely natural disaster. There are only supernatural ones. Every earthquake, every hurricane, every tornado, every fire, every flood, every pandemic is ultimately ordained by God. Nature does not have a mind or will of its own. Mother nature is under the sovereign control of Father God. Job understood that when all that uh, in his life was completely upended and he lost everything He said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he went on to say to his wife, he said, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity from God? Later in Job, in Job 37, he talks about God's control over nature. From the breath of God, ice is made and the expanse of the waters is frozen. Also with moisture, he loads the thick cloud. He disperses the cloud of his lightning and it changes direction, turning around by his guidance that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth. Whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. The psalmist chimes in, Psalm 147, verse 15. God sends forth his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts forth his ice as fragments. Who can stand before his cold? He sends forth his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters to flow. 
In Psalm 148, verse 8, it says, Fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 14 said this, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened, and just as I have planned, so it will stand. This is the plan devised against the whole earth and this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations for the Lord of hosts has planned and who can frustrate it and as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? Isaiah went on in Isaiah 31, he also, God is also wise and will bring disaster. Isaiah 45, verse six, I am the Lord and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Again, the Lord from his own mouth in Jeremiah 32, 42, just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I'm going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. Lamentations, chapter three, verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? And then finally, Amos, the prophet Amos in chapter three, verse six. If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? We can only speculate as to God's specific plans and purposes for causing an earthquake or a tornado or a fire or a flood to hit a particular city or region or for an infectious disease to spread throughout the entire world. But we don't have to speculate as to God's general purposes for these kinds of tragic events, specifically the coronavirus. Based on Jesus' words in this text, COVID-19 is a merciful warning to all mankind. It is a worldwide call to repentance. Notice how this text begins. It says, now on the same occasion, it's important for us to, in order to understand what Jesus is about to say, we need to understand the occasion in which he said it. And so we have to go back to chapter 12, and chapter 12 is all about the importance of being prepared for the unexpected return of Christ. If you look at verse 35 of chapter 12, Jesus said this, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Verse 38, whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so blessed are those slaves, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And so Jesus is coming back when we least expect it and so we better be ready. And if he finds us faithfully serving and obeying him when he comes back, he will reward us with eternal life in heaven. But if we presume that we have plenty of time to do our own thing and he catches us off guard, when he comes back, he will punish us with eternal death in hell. That's what Jesus went on to say In a parable he told in verse 42 of chapter 12, who then is the faithful and sensible sword whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions, but if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers." And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes, but the one who did not know it 
and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few from everyone who has been given much. Much will be required and to whom they entrusted much of him they will ask all the more. Jesus went on and made it clear that when he came the first time, it wasn't to bring peace and unity, but to bring judgment and division. Verse 49, I've come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. For I have a baptism to undergo and how, I, how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. And then notice what he says in verse 54. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing and say it, is, it will be a hot day and it turns out that way, you hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? Jesus rebuked the Israelites in his day for being more in tune with the weather than they were with the times in which they lived. And despite the events that had been taking place which clearly indicated that Jesus was the Messiah, they failed to recognize the spiritual storm clouds that were building. And sadly, many people today lack the spiritual discernment necessary to understand what is going on in the world today. They're experts at analyzing the coronavirus and the economy and the stock market and government policy, but they fail to see the apocalyptic nature of this virus, which is a sign that we are getting closer to the return of Christ. This present pandemic is, is simply a, a preview of the end times when God will unleash his wrath on the entire earth. And as spiritual weathermen who are in tune with the spiritual climate of our day, we should realize that a storm warning is in effect. You understand storm warnings. When the weatherman gives a storm warning, when a storm warning comes onto your cell phone and that, that obnoxious uh, alarm goes off and what is it designed to do? It's to, to put us on the alert and give us time to make the necessary preparations so we don't get caught off guard, we don't get hurt, we don't get killed. And in this case, we need to be on the alert that Christ is coming back soon and we need to be prepared. You might wonder, well, how does one prepare to meet Christ? Well, he goes on to tell us in verse 57. And why do you not even on your own initi initiative judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. So Jesus said the way to escape judgment is to judge yourself. If you know you're guilty of, of a crime, you do whatever you can to settle out of court so you don't have to go to jail and so you're wise to make things right before you stand before the judge. And if you don't, you'll end up having to pay the full price for your punishment. And in this case, the punishment is eternal death in hell. Because the only way to get out of hell is to pay off the enormous debt of sin which you can never pay by yourself. But Jesus can. And Jesus did. And so we come to chapter 13. And Luke records now on the same occasion. In other words, in this context of this discussion about how to escape the judgment of God, some people in the crowd brought up an incident that had 
recently occurred where people had evidently been punished by God. Notice he says, now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. This particular incident involved a a certain atrocity that Pontius Pilate had committed against some Jews who had come down from the region of Galilee to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And Pilate was the despised Roman governor of Judea at the time who was notorious for his foolish, cold-hearted acts of sheer brutality that just enraged the Jews. And on this particular occasion, a Jewish mob had gathered at the temple to protest the decision that Pilate made to use temple funds to improve the city's aqueduct system, which was, in their minds, blasphemous. And so in order to disperse the rioters, Pilate sent soldiers into the crowd disguised as Roman civilians and when he gave the signal, they pulled their swords and they they violently attacked these innocent unarmed people. And Pilate's soldiers were so ruthless that they even brazenly killed some people who were in the middle of offering sacrifices to God and that's what it means when it says whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices. And the people who shared this account with Jesus wanted to get his perspective on this bold-faced act of terrorism. And in light of what Jesus had just taught about discerning the times and escaping God's judgment, I think they were looking to justify themselves based on the prevailing opinion that great tragedies were divine judgments against certain people who deserve to be punished for their sin. And as Jesus often did, he answered their question with a question. In fact, he asked two questions. Verse two, Jesus said, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Verse four, or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? So Jesus brought up another national tragedy that had recently killed 18 people. A tower had, had, had collapsed by the pool of Siloam right there in Jerusalem. And he asked the crowd if they actually believed that these people who suffered these tragic deaths had been singled out by God for judgment since they were worse sinners than everyone else. Which was the common belief of the Jews in those days that nothing happened by chance. People didn't get violently murdered or accidentally crushed by a tower for no reason. They thought that anyone who experienced an unusual amount of of suffering or who died some kind of awful death were being punished by God because they were more sinful than other people. The classic example of this is the man born blind in John chapter nine. Even Jesus' disciples were prone to think wrongly about suffering In John 9, verse one, it says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, human tragedy and suffering are not always the result of personal sin, nor are they always divine punishment. In the case of the man born blind, God sovereignly ordained that he be born blind so that he could put on display his power and his glory in healing him. Now granted, there is a a connection between calamity and iniquity. All calamity in this 
world ultimately, ultimately stems from the fact that we live in a sin-cursed world. Floods, fires, earthquakes, tornadoes, terrorist attacks, locusts, and pandemics are all the result of sin's corruption of our planet. Even so, many people share the same sentiment as the Jews in Jesus' day. And you hear it expressed in that frequently asked question, well, I don't understand, why do bad things happen to good people? R.C. Sproul was asked that question one time and he responded, I don't know, I've never met a good person. That was Jesus' point. He wanted these people to understand that they weren't any better than those who had suffered these terrible deaths. All of us are the same. We're all sinners who deserve to die. Romans 3, verse 10 says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul went on to say in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. Jesus was correcting their wrong theology of human suffering. But he didn't allow the discussion to stay on a theological level. He got very personal. And two times he says this, verse three, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says it again in verse five, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, stop focusing on these other people who died, these awful deaths, and start focusing on your own life and death. Because if you don't repent of your sinful way of life, then you'll experience a similar fate. You will perish forever in hell. And so Jesus capitalized on these two events that had captured the attention of of everyone in Israel and he, he saw them as a golden opportunity to warn people of their urgent need to repent and to get right with God while there was still time. I think those of us who follow Jesus need to do the same thing. As Christians, we shouldn't allow ourselves to to get wrapped up in all the discussions about the coronavirus. We should steer the conversation towards spiritual things and lovingly warn people of their urgent need to repent. Unfortunately, that word repent has bad connotations and In many people's minds, it puts a bad taste in people's mouths because when they think about repentance or repenting, what comes into their mind is some crazy guy on on the street corner wearing a burlap bag and holding a sign or or yelling yelling obnoxiously, "The, the world is coming to an end, repent. And sadly, most of those people get blown off. And no, no one ever stops to ask, hey, what does that actually mean? What, did, what, did, what does it mean to repent? What, what did Jesus mean when he said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish? Well, let me tell you what repent doesn't mean. Repentance is not conviction feeling guilty, in other words, you know you aren't living the way God wants you to. It's not just contrition, it's not just feeling sorry. You're you're sad about the things you've done, but not enough to stop doing them. 
And it's not just confession. It's not just feeling ashamed and enduring the shame and embarrassment of openly admitting your sin. It's not just conviction. It's not just contrition. It's not just confession. You say, well, then what is repentance? I think repentance is conversion. Conversion. In other words, you feel so guilty you feel so sorry, you, you feel so ashamed about your sinful way of life that you completely and permanently change the way you live. You've heard of uh, the expression of foxhole conversion. I'm not talking about a foxhole conversion. A foxhole conversion is a, a shallow, short-lived decision made in the midst of an emotional crisis or a, a fearful situation, but as soon as the pressure is off and as soon as the, the danger is gone and everything in your life goes back to normal, you go back to normal as well. You go back to living just like you used to. That's not repentance. That's temporary reformation. Repentance is when you loathe your sin so much that you leave it for good. Repentance is when you abhor your sin so much that you abandon it forever. That word repent that Jesus used twice in this text literally means to have a change of mind. To have a change of mind. And that change of mind leads to a change of action. And that change of action leads to a change of direction. Isaiah 55 verse six says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon In other words, repentance is changing the way you think and changing the way you live. It's a turning. Let him return to the Lord. Repentance is a turning away from your sin and a turning to following Jesus Christ. It's doing a complete 180 where you just do one of these things. It's a a total turnaround of your life. An old preacher in the past century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, defined repentance with these words. He says, repentance means that you realize you are a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve the wrath and punishment of God, that you are hell-bound. It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you, that you long to get rid of it, and that you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost, the world in its mind and outlook as well as its practice, and you deny yourself and take up the cross and go after Christ. Your nearest and dearest and the whole world may call you a fool, but it makes no difference. That is repentance, Martin Lloyd-Jones said. And I would add to that, that's not only repentance, what he described is a Christian. I'm aware that, as you are, many in the world call themselves Christians because they have accepted the fact that they're a sinner and that Jesus actually lived and died on a cross. You may be one of those. You may even have had an emotional experience with Jesus at some point in your life, but there's been no noticeable change or difference in your life since you accepted Jesus. You can't become a Christian and and keep walking in the same direction. There must be some kind of turnaround in your life. 
And if you truly belong to Jesus, there will be some evidence of it in your life. You'll be able to notice. Others will be able to notice. Something is different about you. And if there's nothing different about you, then you haven't repented. And if you haven't repented, then you're not saved. And if you're not saved, you will perish in hell, no matter what you believe. Again, you might be sitting there thinking, wow, that sounds so harsh. Well, again, I wasn't the first one to say that. Jesus did. And considering the tragic nature of these two events that were on the table, surely Jesus should have responded, could have responded with more care and compassion than this. I would submit to you that he did. He did respond with care and compassion. Listen to the parable that he told to shed some more light on his urgent call to repent. Verse six, and he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? Now for those in that crowd, this was a a common picture for them um, because they lived in an agricultural society and they would see this wherever they went as they were going through life. They would see farmers who would plant fig trees and um, this particular farmer planted a fig tree in the middle of his vineyard and and, uh, gave it every opportunity to produce fruit and he looked forward to enjoying its fruit and, and yet the tree was barren. And according to Levitical law, a farmer had to wait three years before he could expect to see fruit on a tree. And so some would suggest that that this farmer came back three years after those first three years. So for six years since he planted this tree, he kept coming back and there was still no fruit. That in and of itself is patient. That in and of itself is kind. That in and of itself is merciful. One more year of living in sin and one more year of patience. One more year of God's kindness. One more year of God's mercy. But in the farmer's mind at this point it was time to cut that tree down what does this parable teach us about repentance well first of all genuine repentance is evidenced by the fruit it produces genuine repentance is evidenced by the fruit it produces Jesus wasn't the first person to call people to repentance. In fact, John the Baptist led the way as the forerunner of Christ in Luke chapter three, verse eight. He said, therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Instead, the ax is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26, verse 20, talks about uh, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And so genuine repentance is evidenced by the fruit it produces. Furthermore, repentance and its appropriate fruit is encouraged 
by God's patience and kindness. It's not just evidenced by fruitfulness, it's encouraged Repentance is encouraged by God's patience and kindness. Notice verse eight, and he answered and said to him, this is the vine keeper to the farmer or the owner of the vineyard, let it alone, sir, for this year too until I dig around it and put in fertilizer and if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. And so the vineyard keeper steps in intercedes on behalf of that barren tree with the owner and says, hey, can we just give it one more year? Just one more year. And I'll, and I'll till the ground around it. I'll literally, literally it says I'll dung it. <laughs> I'll put some manure around it. I'll fertilize it to see if I can get it to bear fruit. But if it still doesn't bear fruit, then we'll cut it down. And again, in that day, this was customary. Instead of prematurely cutting down a barren tree, a farmer would experiment with it and try various things to help it to produce fruit. Which I hope you see is, is, is such a beautiful picture of God's patience and, and kindness and the merciful mediating work of Jesus Christ in the lives of those who have yet to repent. Even though God has every right to cut you down at any time, he graciously works with you and gives you special care and special attention in order to lead you to repentance. You say, how does he do that? I think he does that by sovereignly ordaining and providentially orchestrating events and circumstances in your life to bring you to Christ. Like all those situations and circumstances and events and that have happened all throughout your life where God may have got your attention but you never, never gave him your heart. You need to know that the tree in this parable represents the nation of Israel in in the context in which Jesus made these statements. Isaiah chapter five, verses one through six is a, a beautiful analogy of how God planted the nation of Israel in the center of his vineyard and he had special plans and purposes for it and he looked for fruit to come from it and it never did. And the whole Old Testament is a record of how God patiently and graciously worked with Israel and gave them chance after chance after chance to be who he created and called them to be. Now he was giving them another chance. The greatest chance of all which was to embrace Jesus Christ as their promised Messiah. Jesus was warning them if they rejected him and continued in the rebellion against him, they would be cut down from their privileged position. And as you may know, that's exactly what happened. Because of their stubborn refusal to repent and submit to Jesus as their Lord and Savior in AD 70, just 40 years after Jesus said this, the Jews were mercifully cut down by the Romans and their capital city of Jerusalem was completely leveled. Not one stone was left on top of another. You also need to know that this parable doesn't just apply to the nation of Israel, it applies to every one of us as individuals. And the, the moral, if you will, of this cautionary tale is that if there's no fruit in your life to prove that you've repented, 
then you too will be cut down and thrown into the fire of hell. But there's good news. There's good news, there's hope. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse nine, the Bible says the Lord is not slow about his promise, which the promise there, he's referring to his return, He's not slow about his promise to come back again as some count slow. It's like, hey, well, what's the deal? Jesus said he was coming back. I haven't seen it. It's been 2,000 years. Was he bluffing? Was he stalling? What, what's going on here? Well, it says the Lord is not slow about his promise to return as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In other words, God is holding off the return of his son Jesus to give you more time to repent and to get right with him. But the opportunity that you have to repent won't last forever. There will come a day when his patience with you will end and no one knows when that time will come. Don't presume upon God's patience and God's kindness. Don't don't put repentance on on your list of things to do sometime in the future. Now is the time to repent. Today is the day of salvation. Romans chapter two, verse four. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? This vine dresser who I think represents Christ was was demonstrating kindness in order to lead this fig tree to fruitfulness. Christ is being merciful and kind to you to lead you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness, the text goes on to say, an unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There is a razor-thin line between God's patience and God's wrath. And for all you know, you may be standing on the edge of that unseen line at this very moment. And if after hearing this message you choose to continue to live in sin, apart from Christ, you may step over that line where God's patience ends and God's wrath begins. I'm sure you've heard it as much as I have, all the talk these days about how our world, our lives will never be the same as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, I hope that will be true for some of you who are listening to this message today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this unexpected intrusion, this unwanted disruption in your life called the coronavirus, may be the very thing that God uses to help you find and follow Jesus. Having a personal relationship with with Jesus Christ will change everything about you. You will never, ever be the same. We have a dear member of our church whose life was radically changed as a result of watching the Twin Towers collapse on 9-11. And then a few months later, experiencing firsthand the collapse of Enron 
You may remember that. The day Enron filed for bankruptcy, there were thousands of employees who were told to pack their belongings up and given 30 minutes to vacate the building. You may remember reading about them or seeing them standing there on the sidewalk with, in downtown Houston with nothing but a, a box of office supplies and a day's look on their face. This person was one of those people. But these two tragic events were acts of God's kindness, acts of God's mercy because he used them to expose the futility of living for yourself and for living, living for the things of this world and led them to pursue a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. And you know what? They've never been the same ever since. And you too could have your life totally transformed today if you're willing to turn away from your sin to follow and obey Jesus Christ. The last thing that you want to have happen is for your life to go back to normal. Let's pray. God, the Your word says that there is joy in heaven whenever a sinner repents. And I pray that there would be much rejoicing in heaven today because of all those who who turn from their sin and and, and turn to to Christ as a result of listening to this message and, and maybe other messages that are preached around the world during this coronavirus pandemic. I pray that you would grant many repentance and faith so that they would be able to fulfill the purpose for which you created them, to bring you glory, to bring you honor by obeying and serving you with their life. And Lord, I pray you'd help us, those of us who know Jesus, who are striving to follow Jesus, Lord, that we would take advantage of this unprecedented event in our lifetime to make much of Jesus, not just in our own lives, not just in our family's lives, but in our neighborhoods, in our communities, Lord, in our nation, around the world, so that Christ would be exalted, lifted high, and that you would draw all men to him. Thank you, God, for your patience. Thank you, God, for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness in using something like the coronavirus to warn us to get right with you. And thank you for providing us a way to get right with you. And that is the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name, amen.